think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're gonna throw me out of here, fellas. You're gonna get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like, in Argentina for River Plate or Boca Juniors, or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matter look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr. My co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 399 of Low Limit Football on this 4th of September, 2023. I am your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight we celebrate 10 years of podcasting with a guest-filled episode today. We are going to be joined by both Jonathan Johnson, French football journalist for CBS Sports, and Tim Vickery, South American football journalist, to look at the Champions League, look at South American World Cup qualifiers, and so much more. But first, let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. 10 years, my man. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Joe. Well, nine years for me, but 10 years in, in as a whole for you. Yeah, time has flown by tremendously. It's been really, you know, incredible to see kind of our progress in this kind of industry that obviously, for better or for worse, has expanded. And, you know, think about, I'm not even talking about to you, Joe, because obviously you're much more, older than I am. But think about how soccer has come a long way ever since you know, I was a little and you were little and even as a young adult and now I'm a young adult and moving forward, it's it's crazy to see. But, you know, again, I'm happy to have been able to have done this for nine years. It's helped me. It's helped you in in terms of our like media careers to say, I mean, we kind of do this as a hobby, of course. But mm -hmm. for myself, I was able to kind of make it into a career, you know, thankfully and fortunately enough. And uh, I really want to thank you for, for kind of helping me on that, you know, that journey that we've been on speaking to people all around the world you know being able to go to matches being able to learn about things and yeah it's it's been it's been wonderful doing this kind of podcasting for so much more and here's to the next 10 years exactly you know i it, it, it couldn't do the journey without you right i mean that's that goes without saying so i'm grateful for you and you know, i'm grateful for saying that you knew your stuff and that's why I wanted to have you back, <laughs> you know, the, those years ago. Um, it's funny because I, I was kind of reflecting about how long we've been doing this and all that stuff. And in the, in the intro music, you hear me say that, uh, and that was for, I, I want to say it was the summer transfer window of 2014. It might've even been 2015, but I said over a billion dollars was spent between the, uh, the top clubs in Europe, um, in the top five leagues there. And then I reflect on now where the transfer window just closed this week and the European clubs, the top five leagues spent 5.7 billion pounds, according to uh, the Guardian's tracker. It's just, you know, like you said, this this football sport that we love has, has come so far, you know, from the st from the start of this podcast to today. We've seen things like VAR. We've seen uh, Copa Americas that we're going to talk about. Copa Americas not played in South America. We've seen... Um, Copa Libertas Doris finals not even played on the same hemisphere um, yep. as they're supposed to be played in. We've We're seen an entire pandemic as well, kind of you yeah. know ruin an entire season. I mean, it's, it's we've got a long way since talking about the Brazil World Cup. It feels like we've seen players that perhaps were what, little kids now turning into megastars. Yeah, like. 
crazy. I, you know, we saw the rise and fall of the Chinese Super League. We see the rise of the Saudi Arabian League now. We, you know, the, so many changes over ten years. Uh, and it was funny. You and I were on Sirius XM FC last week, um, and special thanks again to. Um, Andy Snakowski and Jason Davis for allowing us to come on and celebrate 10 years with them um, and spotlighting us. Uh, you know, we talked about how what's what's been great about this sport, about doing podcasting, is that the information's always fresh, right? There's always something new, uh, no matter what, whether it be, you know, we're going to talk to Jonathan Johnson about Kylian Mbappe, right? Uh, three weeks ago, PSG was a complete disaster, so much that I said Marseille is going to win the league. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Santi Bauza going. So you, so you're voting for chaos. And, and I'm thinking to myself, wait, there's more chaos right now in Paris than there is in Marseille. Which... I mean, there's chaos in Manchester right now. Absolutely. Better word. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that. I mean, again, but that's it. That's like it, it, it always like there's always something going on. And I think that's mm-hmm. the beauty about it, because, you know, Joe, as Americans, we're let's be real. We like drama. We're, we're yeah. used to it here. We, we are big fans of it. And maybe here as Americans, we're so used to it. Like what we get in the NBA what we get in NFL or MLB and whatnot, but it's nothing in comparison to what we get in soccer because it happens everywhere. It doesn't happen just here. It doesn't happen in, in just England. It can happen in France. It can happen in Italy, Germany, Spain, Africa, Asia, South America, wherever it may be. There's always something going on, and I'm glad that you and I have been able to, to learn about it over the years, about everything that's been going on, the highs, the lows, um, and, and everything that's been going on. It's, it's been wonderful and it's helped us grow as a, as, as obviously podcasters, but also in our intelligence. I mean, mm-hmm. I, let me ask you this. When you first started podcasting, did you ever think that you were going to gain this much knowledge in 10 years? No, no, not a chance. And, and it's funny because like you said, I mean, for you, this is, this is your profession. For me, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just a guy that watches too much soccer, right? I, I tell everybody <laughs> maybe that. more than ever now, <laughs> you know. In the last 10 years. And and it's it's amazing that I remember when we first started this podcast, I would literally spend hours doing research, you know, researching teams, researching names, clubs, things, and and now I, I actually find myself putting in less research time overall because I've learned so much along the way. That, you know, if you want to talk to me about Darwin Nunez, yeah, I know he's playing for Uruguay. He's pretty much replacing Cavani now that we move into qualifiers. I don't need to say that to Tim Vickery because Tim Vickery knows that. But now I know that. And, you know, maybe starting out, you know, 10 years ago, I would know who Edson Cavani was, but I wouldn't know what the situation was and Luis Suarez. And, you know, there, there was so much. And now all that knowledge is piled on. And, and I I notice it a little bit when we podcast, right? When we when we put together a show, I really notice it when I'm out in public. When mm-hmm. people right. come up to me and say, you know, they know that I, I do the podcast. I'll go to like, you know, that I play pool quite a bit now. Yep. And there are a couple of guys at the pool hall that literally just stop me in the middle of the building and go, hey, what did you think about uh, Coutinho going to Aston Villa? And it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I can spit out all these all this information and then when you reflect back on the conversation, you're like, wait, I really knew all that, <laughs> you know, um, but it, it, it's crazy. And, and part of that is, you know, just living the sport day in and day out for the past 10 years. Um, yeah, I, I, I did not expect to have this much knowledge of the sport at this point in time. It's just it, it was always hard work, but it was work that I enjoyed. So it's not really yeah, absolutely. work. But yeah, yeah, it was just um, it's incredible. It's been an incredible journey. And again. Like you said, uh, a happy ten years and and to ten more years uh, of doing this, uh, you know. And... Oh, hopefully, hopefully the world will be in much better spot in ten years. But I don't <laughs> see that them being op- being really optimistic on that end. But I you, doubt it. You never know. Um, you never know. So mm-hmm. uh, let's jump into it. We got you know. Re- I remember the years when we used to do three hour podcasts. Um, we used to do, you know, we'd have 11 guests. We would have an hour of being sports guests. Remember we used to do all of that yeah, stuff. So that. we've kind of pared it down a little bit and we've pared the show down over the years. I mean, we used to do three hour pods at the beginning. We've pared them down to about 30 to 45 to 60 minutes tops. And, um, and this 10 year anniversary show is kind of a reflection of that, but it's, it's a show with a couple of very, very big, uh, guests world-renowned guests right let's let's be honest and good friends of ours and good friends of ours as well um you know so the first one you know obviously we mentioned we have 
uh, Jonathan Johnson from CBS Sports uh, with a guest appearance in the background at the end from Alfred. And uh, and then we had Tim Vickery, uh, South American journalist who is known around the world as the Legendino. Uh, he's known that way for a reason. And uh, and just talk about a world presence in football journalism. I mean, there aren't really many out there bigger than Tim Vickery. Um, so it was fantastic to get both of them be able to have both of them join us and, and discuss, you know, the, the topics that are very close to them, um, whether it be French football or Aston Villa. Right. So, you know, we got we had a good time with with both of them. So let's jump into it. First up on the on the list um, again, joining us from France, the uh, French football journalist uh, who covers uh, the sport for CBS Sports. Mr. Jonathan Johnson joined us to talk about Champions League as the draw happened last week. Uh, he also discussed Aston Villa with us, the, the drama at PSG, the drama at Lyon, um, which broke this weekend. So many, many great topics with him. So without further ado, the Jonathan Johnson interview. And joining us now on Low Limit Football, a football journalist based in Paris, uh, reporting for CBS Sports, Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, welcome to the show. It is great to have you back. Uh, it's been quite a while, actually. Uh, Roberto and I were chatting about that. I want to open quickly with uh, Kylian Mbappe. Uh, when Roberto and I did our previews for, uh, for for the different leagues coming up and entering the season, I chose Marseille to win the uh, win league on this season. I thought that there was just way too much chaos between Kylian Mbappe, what was going on at PSG, all the changes they've made in the transfer window, and I felt like it was going to be a little too much for PSG to overcome over the entire season. It seems that things have now settled between Kylian Mbappe and the PSG front office. So I want to ask you, um, are, are those perceptions correct? Have things smoothed out? And what are your impressions of PSG as they've moved through the first four matches this season? Hey there, guys. Great to be back on. Always a pleasure to be with you. So, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me coming into the into the first international break of the season. And it's I mean, it's a really interesting first couple of rounds of games in France in general, but um, specifically with PSG. Uh, you know, PSG started quite slowly with the draw against Lorient and then uh, Toulouse. But since Mbappe has been reintegrated, uh, you know, he sort of came on early in the second half against Toulouse. Since then, PSG have been very much a different beast. Uh, Mbappe himself, very prolific, um, five goals just over those three appearances. So obviously everything that went on this summer hasn't really impacted his ability to still deliver and, and be the, the the sort of key figure in this team. But, you know, I think team is a really interesting word because when you look at the way that PSG have played, certainly in the last two games against Lens and Lyon, two of the traditionally stronger sides in, uh, in Ligue 1, although they're having very difficult starts to the season, uh, you know, you can really see what Luis Enrique has been working uh, to, to try and build since the beginning of, uh, of his time in charge uh, back in uh, at the start of July. So, you know, things are coming together quite nicely. You're right. There have been a lot of changes made to this PSG squad. But if you look at it on paper now, I think it's it's a lot more balanced. There's a lot more depth. There's a lot more quality um, and also a bit more variety as well in terms of the profiles of player, uh, which is something PSG haven't really had for, for quite some time. So despite that, you know, keeping Mbappe and obviously his superstar power that comes with it. Overall, uh, you know, I think PSG have got their bases better covered than they have done, you know, for, for many a year now. So, um, you know, I think it's been fascinating to watch how sort of the team dynamic has grown so far. Uh, there is room for development, obviously, uh, and things are going to start getting interesting in September. There's a few, um, you know, tough games coming up, but also you've got the Champions League group stage, which gets underway in PSG. Arguably, you could say have sort of been handed the, the trickiest of, of most of the big clubs in uh, in this season's edition, uh, you know, but clearly there is something sort of changing with this PSG uh, side. You know, they're moving away from sort of that collection of superstar names that used to rely on individual talent, uh, and now starting to make something that is really strong collectively. Uh, and uh, you know, I think it, you know they aiming to be made of tougher stuff, especially when it comes to the business end of the season, sort of once you get into the Champions League knockout phase, all of that. So, you know, very interesting to see everything, um, sort of how it's developing so far at Parc des Princes. But 
We can also take it with a pinch of salt at this moment in time, I think, because specific to the Mbappe situation, he still hasn't extended his contract yet. So in terms of sort of clarity, yes, we know where he's playing his his football this season. He's going to be playing in Paris, but he hasn't extended his contract. So he's still, uh, you know, will be a free agent come, uh, you know, next summer as things stand at this moment in time. That could change. But, uh, you know, for now, uh, you know, the contract is still expiring. So until that changes, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that things are necessarily settled completely between Mbappe and the, and the club hierarchy. Also, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, loss and neon difficult starts to the season. There's no guarantee that they'll sort of be, um, you know, challenging PSG at the top end of the table. Monaco, the early pace set is PSG level on points with Marseille. So, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, a lot of football to be played, but it's just been a very interesting start so far. And I think we'll know more sort of come the end of September uh, when PSG have had a couple of those, uh, you know, tricky early games. But like I alluded to earlier, you kind of don't really judge what's happened with PSG up until sort of somewhere between Christmas and the beginning of springtime, because that's when you start to see the cracks. You know, they start to appear like they did last season. PSG were unbeaten going into the World Cup break and they were completely abysmal after it so I do think that there is um, sort of a a need to sort of not overblow PSG's early season form but equally uh, you know to not completely ignore the fact that this looks like a very different PSG to the ones we've seen in previous years. Now, Jonathan, obviously assessing that Champions League group that you mentioned like you said I think a lot of people can say it really is the group of death because when you look at it they got they got grouped in with Borussia Dortmund, who, you know, currently are, you know, kind of a bit struggling in, in the Bundesliga so far. Two draws in their first three games. Uh, Milan, who have looked perfect so far. Three games, three wins straight off there. Currently at the top level of the of the uh, Serie A. And then you got Newcastle United, the new boys who haven't been in the Champions League in quite some time. And with a lot of expectation for them, they're not off to a good start. Three losses in their first four games. So I just wanted to ask, really, how do you assess their Rival, your uh, PSG's rivals, they kick it off straight off in the Parc de France against Borussia Dortmund. And, you know, how do you see them really finishing off this this really tough group for, for everyone? I mean, I'm, I guess I, I kind of buck the trend in terms of uh, how I view the, the group from a PSG point of view. Um, I don't agree that it's a group of death for PSG. I'm not saying it's a straightforward one, uh, you know, not not at all. I, you know, I think it's, it's tricky, it's challenging, but and I think that's a good thing for PSG. But, you know, I think a real group of death would have been sort of landing on Real Madrid, Milan, uh, you know, Newcastle, and, you know, sort of having the, the dual narrative of, of Mbappe and, uh, you know, sort of Qatar and PSG versus Saudi Arabia and Newcastle. Uh, you know, obviously then up against, uh, you know, a, a real traditional European force like uh, Milan as well. So I do think it could have been worse. Um, but I, I think the group is set up really well to, to challenge PSG. I think it's an ideal start at home to Dortmund. Like you said, they're not doing particularly well in the Bundesliga at present. Uh, it really wouldn't surprise me, actually, if Dortmund you know, were not to advance from this group to the latter stage of the Champions League. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they were to finish bottom, depending on how competitive Newcastle are. But like you said, you know, Newcastle will be returning to to this level for the first time in a long time. It's not easy to adapt to. Uh, And Newcastle themselves haven't had a great start to the season either. So it's difficult to to sort of judge exactly where this group is at and and sort of how it could play out. But I, I think it's an interesting scenario for PSG. I mean, I've never believed that it, you know, it benefits PSG drawing what would be considered an easy or a straightforward group. I think they need to be challenged as early in the season as possible, and they need that challenge to remain in place over the course of the campaign. Uh, and that's what sort of brings the best out of them, uh, you know, both domestically and continentally. They haven't had that for quite some time. Uh, you know, so you've seen them sort of peter out either dom- either domestically, either continentally, both, uh, you know, sometimes like last season, for example. So, you know, I do think sort of having this, uh, you know, sort of challenging scenario where, OK, they know Dortmund a bit because they came up against them recently, uh, notably the season when they made it all the way to the final that was COVID impacted. Uh, but also, uh, you know, coming up against, uh, you know, a club with the pedigree of Milan, um, you know, like, 
sort of a club with the potential that Newcastle have, which is sort of, you know, they're kind of where PSG were, uh, you know, sort of 10 plus years ago when the Qatar project started. Uh, you know, it's it, it's really fascinating and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But I, I just wouldn't call it necessarily a group of death like so many people are making out. And I think if, if PSG look at the group and feel like it's a group of death, then I, I'd sort of question... Um, you know, sort of how strong their ambitions are for, for this season off the back of what's been a mammoth uh, overhaul in the transfer window. Yeah, absolutely. And now looking into the other French team in this uh, Champions League group stage, we've got Lens in a group with Sevilla, you know, obviously the European, the Europa League champions, but of course not doing so well over there in, in La Liga currently in last place. Arsenal, <laughs> a team that, you know, that's coming off at the time of recording of a really good comeback win against Manchester United. Over there at the Emirates and and PSG Eindhoven, you know, obviously a, a, t- a side that had to sweat it out over there in the um, in the qualifiers to make it to the group stage. So you know, obviously Lens had a lot of overhaul over the summer. You know, currently not off to the best start at the um, in in Liga. So how do you assess their chances? And again, another tough group for for a French side. Yeah, this one this one's tricky to judge. Um, I I did expect Lens to be more uh, competitive from the off this season. That's uh, that's true. But equally, at the same time, I knew it was always going to be difficult for them to move on from a losing a talismanic figure like Seko Fofana. So I think that was always going to be tricky. Uh, you know, it was interesting as well to see that they uh, cashed in on Luis Sapenda, who went to Leipzig um, over the summer as well. Uh, they've done well, I think, to to bring in uh, Wahi, who was wanted by a number of clubs across Europe. But uh, it takes time for, for players like that to bed in. Uh, and I think there was always going to be an element of whether, uh, you know, how do you follow on from the massive success that was finishing in second place and one point behind PSG last season? Very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and it's proven to be a tough start so far for Franquez and his side. Okay, they haven't had uh, necessarily, um, you know, the most favourable of fixtures, notably having to go to Parc des Princes, uh, you know, to play PSG within those first four games when, you know, I feel like all teams are really, you know, finding their feet and we don't really see their true, uh, you know, faces until sort of between the first international, the end of the first international break and sort of the the Christmas period. But for Lance, I think in terms of their Champions League group, uh, it's set up really intriguingly. I mean, I think it's going to be a huge event for Lance being back in the Champions League. Uh, you know, they're stadium atmosphere at the Bollout is going to be one for, for neutrals to keep an eye on. I think it's going to be fantastic that they've got Champions League football finally back there after 20 or so years without it. Um, you know, and I think no team uh, in that group is going to want to, to go there and, and face them. The, the question will be sort of how lost fair and uh, perform uh, on the road. You know, if they can make things tough for, for, for people when they come to Northern France and if they can nick a few points on the road, in my opinion, a good uh, a good campaign for Lens in the Champions League will probably end up with at least third place in the group and dropping down into the Europa League. Uh, I think it would be disastrous for Lens and for French football if they were to drop out and finish last, which is what's happened with Marseille in the past, notably last season. But you know, French football really needs uh, the teams that can compete the best to to remain in competition for as long as possible. Uh, and although I would love for, for Lens to make it out of the group, and I, I wouldn't rule it out completely based on the draw, um, I think their priority has to be ensuring that they finish above at least one of those teams, so probably Sevilla or PSV Eindhoven. So you'd assume that Arsenal will probably win that group. Um, but you know we've seen Sevilla really, really struggle in the group stage of the Champions League last season and still end the campaign with uh, European silverware. So perhaps they'll be aiming uh, at the same thing that I'm suggesting Lens should aim at and, uh, you know, dropping into the Europa League. But, uh, you know, really, I think anything above finishing bottom of that group would be a big success for Lens, especially bearing in mind how tricky this start to the season uh, has been for them. And, you know, fingers crossed that they can do it because French football really now needs, uh, you know, the, the teams that are competing in the Champions League, in the Europa League, in the Europa Conference League to start performing, uh, you know, and to, to win back some of those coefficient points because to be overtaken and, and left in the rearview mirror by the Netherlands, uh, you know, would be a big, big blow. And I think, you know, that's also something that's quite interestingly in play here in this group coming up against PSV Eindhoven. If Lance were to be able to finish above PSV, 
and knock them out of Europe completely, you know, that would also be quite motivating. But like I said, I have the most doubts probably about Sevilla at this moment in time, more so than uh, anyone else. Interesting stuff. Uh, Jonathan, I want to, before I run back into uh, France and ask you my closing question for Ligon, I want to have you put on your fan hat instead of your, your supporters hat instead of your journalistic hat. And tell me what your thoughts are of Aston Villa in their Europa Conference League with a, you know, a, a groupie that I think they can manage with Azad Alkmaar, Legia Warsaw, and um, Mostar. What, um, what are your thoughts uh, on your, uh, your Villa side? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously it's fantastic to, to be back in Europe after 10 plus years away. Really, really excited about it. Um, and sort of playing on the the topic that I mentioned a minute ago with uh, Lens coming up against PSV Eindhoven in the group. Uh, you know, Villa could potentially do French football a favour uh, by making sure that RZ Alkmaar have a really difficult time in this group. Because I think that on paper, at least, you look at it and think that RZ and Villa are probably going to be the two strongest sides that are battling it out to, to finish top of this group. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it could have been a much tougher draw. Uh, I mean, for selfish reasons, I'm personally disappointed Villa didn't get Lille. Uh, I would have loved to have had them coming to to France and playing in my backyard, but who knows? Perhaps uh, later on in the season, we'll see if you know if Villa can get out of the group and then reach the knockout phase. Uh, you know, if they might come up against somebody there. But uh, no, I think in terms of uh, a, a return to, to Europe, you know, it's an interesting one at Villa because you've got Unai Emery who's got so much experience in Europe and a lot of Villa's squad who have, I wouldn't say no experience, but sort of collectively, uh, you know, sort of little experience compared to some of the other squads that he's managed uh, in recent years. So no, it's going to be a really interesting one to see playing out. Uh, I I would really struggle to see Villa not finishing in the top two in that group. But RZ, uh, you know, they showed with their deep run last season, uh, you know, that they're a team to be reckoned with in Europe. Uh, you know, and fingers crossed Villa are able to strike that balance between staying competitive in the Premier League, uh, you know, and also being able to, to get the, the necessary results um, in the Europa Conference League as well, because I think this is going to be, uh, you know, quite a challenge for for this team, you know, having their first taste of continental action um, and learning how to handle it from sort of like a physical point of view. Uh, as well as mental. Um, so, no, it's, you know, it, it's fascinating. Uh, and on paper, it does look as if it's sort of set up for Villa to at least secure one of those top two spots. But in Europe, you never know. So, fingers crossed uh, Villa can, uh, you know, continue their European adventure and, uh, and and we'll see where it goes from there. But I hope that it doesn't come uh, at the expense uh, of uh, Premier League form because, you know, Villa have shown already that... They might find it tricky away from home, but they also have the ability to beat teams still. So, you know, fingers crossed that there's not too many other injuries. We've already seen the likes of Mings, Buendia, uh, Diego Carlos, uh, you know, pick up injuries so far this season. So it's it's been quite tough and Emery's got a few new faces to, to bed in. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, that uh, all goes without uh, without a hitch. And, and sort of we're here in a few months time talking about Villa potentially being in the knockout phase of the conference league. Now, I, I know we only have a couple seconds left and I wanted to get your thoughts on this um, yesterday or I believe over the weekend PSG absolutely dismantled Lyon 4-1 uh Lyon currently no wins on the on this early season they've only scored three goals and the ultras after the match against PSG really laid into um the Lyon squad and and you know how disappointed they are at the team so far what's going on at Lyon this is one of the giants of French football you know that they won so many championships in the early 2000s what what's going on with uh with that side and can it be fixed in time to at least challenge for the top spot in the season Oh man, what's not going on in yeah. Leon at this moment in time? I think it's probably the right question to ask because uh, it's it's a very difficult situation. I mean, you've seen a couple of key departures this summer: Castello Lukeba going to to Leipzig, Bradley Barkala getting picked up by PSG. But you've had this very tricky transition of power as well from uh, Jean Michel Olas, who was there for for thirty plus years, and and John Texter, who's come in. Uh, big questions about sort of his actual financial capacities uh, and so. Certainly his sort of first few steps as, uh, as Lyon's new president have not been convincing at all. Uh, and now you've got this ugly situation as well where sort of some of the fr- the funds uh, are frozen because uh, Oles's company are, uh, are taking 
defamation action uh, against Textor. So, yeah, it's gotten pretty ugly. Uh, obviously, the team not performing on the pitch uh, doesn't help either. Uh, what I would say is that this is perhaps not a vintage Leon side. Um, you, you know, you've got sort of a lot of old heads, uh, you know, who are earning good money for a sort of mediocre return uh, on what they're doing. Some of them, especially like Tolisa, for example, fairly injury prone. Okay, Lacazette is scoring a lot of goals, uh, you know, but he sort of can't do it uh, alone and was suspended for that game against PSG as well. So tough times for, for Lyon. It's uh, difficult to see them turning it around under, under Laurent Blanc. Would not surprise me at all um, if the club parts ways with him during the international break. Uh, and they try and bring in somebody new to, to potentially turn this around. But at this moment in time, uh, you know, there's no sort of easy or obvious solution to, to the problems that Leon have. And um, unfortunately, this is, a, uh, you know, what was once a big club uh, in France that's sort of struggling to, to deal with uh, the reality of, uh, you know, the footballing landscape, both domestically and continentally these days. And Lyon is not set up to not have European football, but they haven't qualified for Europe for a couple of seasons now. So, you know, either, uh, you know, they need to, you know, to steady the ship and, and turn things around and start moving back in the right direction or, they're going to have to embrace the fact that, you know, they're no longer, uh, you know, the the club that they once were, which, you know, used to represent Ligue 1 and French football so well in uh, in continental competition. So fingers crossed it will be the latter. But so far, we haven't seen too many encouraging signs. Interesting stuff going on at Lyon indeed. Jonathan, thank you for joining us on our 10-year anniversary show. We really appreciate everything you do for us and hope to have you back again very, very soon, my friend. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, congratulations on the milestone and uh, I look forward to the next appearance. And special thanks again to Jonathan for joining us on the show. Next up, we were joined by legendary South American football journalist Tim Vickery to talk about World Cup qualifying in South America coming up, as well as many other topics. So without further ado, the Tim Vickery interview. And joining us now on Low Limit Football, South American journalist uh, extraordinaire, Mr. Tim Vickery, coming back to the show. Tim, welcome back. It is always a pleasure to have you on. And I want to start out uh, asking a quick question about uh, Carlo Ancelotti. And it was funny because Roberto and I were talking about this a little earlier uh, before recording. And this is something that's kind of flown under the radar a little bit, but it's I know I saw it at least once. Um, and there's been reporting that... Carlo Ancelotti may not be coming to the Brazilian national team after the the Real Madrid season. Obviously, his contract is up at the end of the season, and it's been anticipated that he would come to um, Brazil for the Copa America or somewhere there within. And now there's reports that he may retire. So, one, have you heard anything further on that particular news? And two, um, what's your anticipation of what Carlo will do at the end of the Real Madrid season? Well, we've never had official confirmation that Ancelotti is going to take over Brazil. Never. Um, in part, that's, that's because he's only free to enter into a new agreement with future employers when his current contract is in its last six months, i.e. from January. So until January, he's not really free to talk about the Brazil move. So we, we've, we've never had any confirmation from Ancelotti that, that he's going to do this. Brazil's FA president is convinced that he is. I know journalists who've been in contact with his entourage who are also convinced, but I don't think uh, everyone is convinced. Um, Brazil's current stand-in coach, Fernando Diniz, who uh, will start his his uh, caretaker reign this week, he is absolutely adamant that he's not part of any Ancelotti process. He's never been an assistant to anyone, doesn't want to know about Ancelotti, he's never spoken to him, never met him. Uh, and uh, you kind of get the feeling that maybe Fernando Diniz believes that the job will still be his in a year's time. So we don't know, and things will become clearer, I think, in January. But for the moment, the whole Ancelotti thing has never been confirmed. So let's then look at the Brazilian national team then, because they uh, they opened their World Cup qualifying campaign coming up this week against Bolivia. Uh, the match is in uh, Belém, I believe. And so this this is obviously a match that the Bolivian side 
at altitude for me has always been, uh, you know, a tougher task. But I would say if Brazil are home, this is going to be a different world. You co- you combine that with um, the news, obviously, that Neymar moves to Al Hilal in the uh, transfer window here. There's been a lot of movement um, in terms of some of the Brazilian players. What is, what's your impression, especially with Denise and what he's going to be moving forward with this first qualifier? What's your impression of the Brazilian team heading into this match? It's hard to have one because, and this is something which I think applies in general to this set of qualifiers. It is by far the shortest interval that there's ever been between the end of one World Cup cycle and the start of another. Uh, And that means that we're looking at some very, very undercooked teams. And there's only been the FIFA dates of of March and of June. Uh, And Brazil used them with a caretaker coach. And now they start an entirely new process. And it, it's, it's that, um, that thing that international coaches always complain about. Who's fit? <laughs> who do I still have? Well, I don't have Vinicius Jr., who may well have been now the most important player of the attack. Is Neymar fully fit? Who have we got? Let's see who we can patch up and send out on almost no time on the training ground. So it's, uh, it, it's very – and Denise has never worked uh, at this level. Um, so it's just as well, perhaps, for Brazil that they do have what would, in the normal way of thinking, would be the absolute home banker uh, against Bolivia that they've taken up to to Berlin there uh, um, <laughs> to make it as as hot and uncomfortable for for the Bolivians as possible. Now, looking obviously into the other games, you know, the first one to talk about, which for me at least is a big interest, and I think in this kind of new process with the World Cup, as you said. It's an expanded one, obviously expanded World Cup, which means two new spots in Comebol from four to six, which means that opens more spots for other teams who have missed out in the past an opportunity to qualify. I'm talking about, of course, Paraguay and Peru, who obviously didn't qualify for the last World Cup. They're taking on each other over Dencio Aleste on Thursday. How do you assess this first game between these two sides? Well, Peru, um, new coach, Reynoso, was a great player for them. I think the, the decline... Uh, of the Peru side that it went through right at the start of the century has everything to do with the fact that he was uh, prematurely discarded as a player, as a centre-back. But really, it's the same old, same old in terms of playing staff. When he's trying to promote some from from domestic Peruvian football, but that's a disaster zone, really. I think it's, what, 10 years that no Peruvian side has made it out of the group phase of the Libertadores. He doesn't really have a a, a lot to to work with. apart from the players that, that Gareca worked with, who and maybe that, that side now is, is, is past its peak. So uh, I, I don't have the greatest ex- expectations from Peru over the course of the campaign. Paraguay is a more interesting one. I mean, Paraguay, apart from Argentina, Scaloni, and Paraguay is the only team whose coach has taken charge of competitive games in his cycle. You know, Baro Shiloto, he did, he did the, the last few in the last set of World Cup qualifiers. Uh, and I know he's optimistic for a couple of reasons. One is that, and Paraguay's problem uh, in, in recent campaigns has been a chronic one of lack of goals. Uh, he thinks that with Enciso and Almiron on fire in the Premier League, that problem is, is going to be resolved, although Enciso is, is currently unfit. But also, I think uh, he said something very interesting a couple of days ago that he understands the Paraguayan player more now um, because it is, it is a different, it's a different cultural context. Uh, and uh, he, he says that, you know, that the, the human side of, of, of that relation is now much better than it was when, when he took over. So maybe Paraguay is one of those, that, those sides that you're looking at based on improved um, firepower and, and based on, on a coach who now knows his players better, maybe Paraguay is one of those sides you're looking for a little bit of improvement in this campaign. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, to be a bit biased, I'd love to, to see that happen and, and have more optimism heading into this qualifying process. And one team that is currently on a high and has been on a high for the last, oh, I'd say, 10 months is Argentina, the reigning world champions. They are back. They are looking to obviously start defending their crown, but of course qualifying for the World Cup here in, in North America as they take on Ecuador over there at the Monumental. Obviously, Scaloni has opted with kind of basically the same players that helped him win that World Cup in Qatar. And obviously, the inclusion of Lionel Messi is still back with some new players against an Ecuador side that 
uh, under new manager Felix Sanchez Bass is looking to, you know, try to utilize that same squad that qualified to Qatar to go back to North America. So how do you see this fixture for the world champions against the Ecuadorians? It, it's an interesting one because Ecuador are a rising force uh, and they've got speed on the transitions. I mean, this time in the last campaign, it was a, it was a narrow victory for Argentina against an Ecuador side who were, who were very undercooked. But the time before, Ecuador took them apart in Buenos Aires. Uh, and uh, the Argentina defence just couldn't cope with the, uh, especially with with Antonio Valencia. Uh, and Ecuador do have some terrific young players, and they have some some. There's a physicality about them that makes them difficult opponents. New coach, new tactical formation. He's he's tended to to favour a, a back three so far. Um, Felix Sanchez uh, and Argentina in what is going to be a gentle transition over the next few years. We don't know if Messi's going to be there all the way at the moment. He says probably not, but we shall see. Um, they're a play on Otamendi, I think, is, is one that they're going to have to replace. He's still in the squad, but I think and we, we were one great save away from concluding in the World Cup final that in the end, Argentina's centre-backs let them down. Uh, you know, uh, the goalkeeper got, got them out of trouble there with a, with that fantastic last last gasp save. That's an area that surely needs improving. Um, maybe Lissandro Martinez, although doubts about his fitness, Senezi of Bournemouth has, has been has been brought in. Um, but they're, they're going to have to improve, I think, in in, in that position. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, climb, climbing the mountain is very hard. Staying at the top of the mountain is even harder. Uh, so uh, it's the one thing I think you can more or less guarantee with the expanded format is that Brazil and Argentina are going to make it. They have struggled in the past. You know, Argentina struggled a couple of times recently. Brazil struggled like mad for to, to get to 2002. That you 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 think now that they've got enough margin for error, uh, and uh, yeah, you, you'd expect what's going to happen now is a, is a kind of gentle transition that Scaloni is going to make over, over the next three years. Yeah, absolutely. And one team that is also looking to go into a transition and to try to qualify back to World Cup against the side that is looking to go into their first ever World Cup. Obviously, with this expanded World Cup, that opens the opportunity to Venezuela, who traveled to Barranquilla to take on Colombia, a Colombia side that missed the last World Cup, now under Ernesto Lorenzo. And with a lot of players that, you know, are still, you know, trying to be on their last legs, like your James Rodriguez, Juan Cuadrados, and many others. How, how do you assess this game between these two neighbors uh, in Barranquilla? Well, so far, in terms of results, Lorenzo has done wonderfully well. In fact, when he was he was an assistant for years and years and years. He was Peckerman's assistant with the Colombian national team. And then when he went on a solo flight in Peru with Melgar, he did what he did fantastically well there. Uh, and uh, the results since he's taken over Colombia have have similarly been been fantastic. And Colombia were the big disappointments in the last qualification campaign. And what was it? Something six consecutive games without a goal? It's insane. Problems in that in that dressing room. That it would seem on the face of it that Lorenzo has 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 sorted out. So certainly you're looking for for better things from Colombia this time around. Venezuela for them last time everything went wrong. Everything went wrong in qualifiers, and that they could hardly get their hands on on Big Rondon, the centre forward. It was so vital to the way that they play. When they had him, they were they were they were a different force. Well, now they'll have him because he's back in South America, no problems anymore. But is he just that little bit past past his best? Um, they, they've they've done well under under their coach. It's amazing the the, the amount of Argentine coaches around. Fernando Batista, the the and his results ha, have been good uh, so far. But in the boiling afternoon heat of, of, of Barranquilla, you'd certainly make Colombia favourites for this one. Um, although Venezuela, the, that World Cup debut, it's going to happen one day and it may well happen 2026. It's maturity now for that generation who reached the final of the, of the World Under-20 Cup a few years back. Um, some of them have fallen by the wayside. Others are mature, mature consolidated players. So uh, uh, I, I think Venezuela have a, a difficult first match, but I certainly wouldn't bet against them making the cut. And Tim, I wanted to jump in here now because I wanted to take a look at the last match quickly. But when you look at all five of these qualifiers coming up, the only I, I think everybody, the underdogs all have a puncher's chance in them. I think yeah. except for, for Bolivia, I think every every team offers something uh, and uh and and which is 
part of uh, qualifying in Kami Ball, I guess, right? It's it's one of the most difficult places to qualify for a World Cup, even though they get traditionally five spots or four and a half. Uh, it's it's always a, a challenge right up to the last day. So I, I want to jump into the last match, uh, Uruguay-Chile, because this is another one, like I said, puncher's chance. Um, Uruguay have a, a, a decent young squad. They do have El Loco himself at the, at the helm now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Darwin Nunez start uh, start out on the right foot for Liverpool so far this season, so I think that's that's promising for Uruguay. And you look on the Chilean side, they have a mix of young and old, but unfortunately the old is very old. You're looking at, um, you know, I just had the team up here quickly. You have Alexis Sanchez at 34 years old. You have Arturo Vidal at 36. Charles Aranguiz is at 34 years old. There's, there's plenty of age, and some would say experience, but... It gets to a point when when the veggies are just rotting on the shelf, and and unfortunately, I think we're well past the uh, 2016 Copa America championship side here in Chile. So, how do you see this last one breaking out? Because I think there's a lot of questions in this particular matchup from both sides. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, with Chile, the old is very old, and the young hasn't done anything. Hmm. I mean, the, the the lack of youth development work in Chile is it's just appalling, and no one really is kind of, is coming through. I've got reasonable hopes of a of a young centre forward with Colo Colo Pizarro, Damian Pizarro, who's strong and I think he he looks to have something about him. But uh, the state of of Chilean football looks extremely bad. It's Bielsa against a Bielsa uh, um, ex, an ex Bielsa boy, Eduardo Berizzo, who's trying to get blood from a stone with you know hanging on to that same old generation, which as you mentioned is now is now. You know, the, the triumphs were were seven and six and seven years ago. Um, the, the problem that Uruguay have is, again, they are totally undercooked. And Bielsa, he had two games in June. He used them to have a look at fringe players. So this is the first time that he's working with his players. So it really is, you know, a couple of training sessions and, and out you go. Uh, you can see why he, he would he would be interested in, in the job. Um because on Uruguay, in contrast to Chile, Uruguay's under, uh, youth development, so the success that, and the emphasis they placed on the, on the under-20 team, means that he, he's got young, hungry, dynamic players to work with. And to play the Bielsa way, you've got to run. Uh, you, you, you need that kind of dynamism. Now, he doesn't have Araujo, who's injured, so he's a loss. They missed out on him in the World Cup as well. But he does, you know, he, as well as, as Darwin Nunez and Valverde, who I think will be, is, is probably his key player, you know, as, as something like four lungs. So you certainly think that given this raw material, Bielsa can certainly get a tune out of it. But the, the, the problem is the lack of preparation work, the lack of time on the training field. I get the feeling with this set of qualifiers that next year's Copa America is going to be very important. Not for the results in the tournament, but just for the, it, it's going to be a chance for the coaches just to get together with their players for a prolonged period of time. Um, we've seen some sides really benefit from that. And you remember the last one that we had in the States in 2016. Peru were one side before that tournament and another side after that tournament. The, the regrouping in, in that tournament gave them the springboard to then reach Russia 2018 and come very, very close to, to reaching uh, 22 with essentially the same side. So uh, we've got these six rounds coming very quickly now, this month, next month, and November. Then there's a pause until the second half of next year. And I think the preparation work that goes on during the course of the Cop America is going to be a vital part of the story. Are you going to be coming to the United States? I know Roberto and I are, are certainly looking forward to the Copa America next year. Will you be uh, Will you be coming to the United States for that one? I don't know. Um, at the moment, I'm inclined to doubt it. Uh, I really enjoyed it, actually, last time. But it was very, very odd. It was really odd. When I've done every Cop America since since Paraguay in 1999, uh, and <laughs> by far the U.S. one was the strangest Um Part of that is is changes that are happening in technology anyway. But I'm, you know the stadiums, you're just behind glass. It's rubbish, man. You know, it's just it's, it really is. It's it's crap, and you might as well be watching on TV. And to be behind glass in these stadiums, it's just extraordinary, terrible, appalling. So that, that's one reason not to go. Another is bizarrely they won't let you work. You know, I mean, right. you use a press center and a press center is where everything gets done. It's where you meet people and chat and so on. No press centers uh, in 2016. They only had press facilities 
inside the stadium in the game, and they wouldn't let you work. They wouldn't let you broadcast stuff. You know, <laughs> bizarre. You know, I've never seen anything remotely like it in in a, in a, in a, a Cop America. So again, that takes away a reason for, for for going. And there was no feeling of a Cop America uh, when you were away from the stadium. You know, it might as well not not have been not have been happening. So I don't know. I mean, the reason I actually enjoyed it was usually at a Cop America. You know, there's a press center, and that's where you go. And say you've got an article to write at the start of the day that should take you an hour. Well, it doesn't because it takes you four hours because you're chatting away and you're gossiping away and there's 20 Colombian radio stations want to come and interview you. Yeah. you know? wow. And it takes, it takes ages to get anything done. But, but that's part of the experience. That's part of the, the feel of, of being immersed in, in the Copa America. Um, States 2016 is the only time I've ever been there. It was just bizarre because you know there was nowhere to go there's no press center so you're just doing the work on your own and that article didn't take four hours it took an hour meaning you, you, you had the day you had the day free to go and wander around and see the sites so mm-hmm. I, I, I saw more of the cities than I ever usually do in, in, in the course of a normal cop america but uh um you know it was it was su- such a strange sporting experience such a strange journalistic experience you know like you were dipping into the tournament on match day you know, and and apart from that, it, it seemed like it wasn't really going on at all. So I don't know whether it, it will be worth my while going going up there. I'm, I'm not so sure. But, you know, to sit and watch games behind glass in these stadiums, it's, it's probably not worth it. Well, if you do come up, I know Roberto and I will uh, be uh... – We'll, we'll, we'll create a press center so you and I can have a pint together. <laughs> That's what we'll have to do. Uh, Tim, thank you again for joining us on our 10-year anniversary. Always a pleasure to have you on, and, and we look forward to having you back very soon. Brilliant. Look forward to it. And special thanks again to Tim Vickery for joining us on the show. Roberto, we kind of parted from the uh, the standard that we would normally do every week where we would have trivia, we'd have match of the week and everything like that. We're entering the World Cup break or the, uh, the you know, the summer, I'm sorry, the September uh, break period or break window. So uh, as far as matches of the week go, there are going to be MLS matches coming up because they're not going to take the time off. There will be World Cup qualifiers. There will be European qualifiers. There'll be a bunch of friendlies as well. Check your local listings uh, for times and and dates and channels for those shows. I'm sorry, those matches. um, And we hope you enjoy them. Uh, But without further ado, my friend, let me hit the closing music. Let's do it. All right, here we go. So for episode 399, our 10-year anniversary episode, special thanks again to Jonathan Johnson and Tim Vickery for joining us on the show. Next week, we're going to go from one milestone to another as we depart and start our 10 years of podcasting with our 400th episode. So be on the lookout for that as I'm sure we'll have a great guest for that uh, episode as well. So for episode 399 of Low Limit Football, I'm Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.